0: In um, the formal descriptions of Paticca Samuppada, which is basically the the deep part of the second noble truth of how the mind works. Hello? uh, Yes, I'm here.
1: Sorry, you cut out for a second. Uh, Pratita Samuppada, how the mind
0: works. Right. So, Pratita Samuppada starts off with uh, the understanding. First off, the Pratita Samuppada itself is the process of the mind to show how the mind winds up in suffering or in dukkha or, let us say, winds up in one of the woeful states of mind. And so, uh, in the very beginning of the understanding of the teacher samapada, or the things that start early, are the foundations, or the things that were there from the past. And that these things were based on uh, ignorance, in the sense that we, without full knowledge of, of the adult that we have now, we made children's-like decisions when we were children. And then those childlike decisions wind up being a part of our makeup in the sense of the old habits of the mind. But the important part is to understand that just because all of those Sankaras are there from the past, they do not define who I am, That I can change that this is an important quality because um in the time of the buddha and we find this throughout all religions is they have the idea that um uh the problems of humanity cannot be solved by humanity or the problem that an individual has cannot be solved by that that individual because of this past. In other words, the past defines who we are. But the teachings of the Buddha says, no, the past does not define who you are. That you have an opportunity to be anything you want to be right in this present moment, so long as you have the skill base for it. And so uh, much of what we're talking about is developing a skill base so that we can manage these Sankara's. Now what the word Sankara actually means, um, the, the technical definition in a poly Dictionary would be things that are stuck together, compounded things, things that are, uh, let us say, have diverse origins. But they combine together into something that's um, kind of hard and solid, to where the constituent components themselves are not. Alright, so the three kinds of Sankaras, one is body, the other one is uh, verbal, and the third one is Sita, or emotional. And so in Anapanasati practice, we're actually going to learn to control these three kinds of Sankara in the sense of making new things and putting that together with the old to come up with something new. And so we learn to control first the body through the breathing. We learn to control the breathing by taking long, deep breaths. Then the second one is, is that we learn to control the thoughts by allowing only wholesome thoughts. And then our our verbal talk. And then we allow only, um, when we get good at it, we only allow emotions or uh, sensations or um, feelings that, let us call them are appropriate, as opposed to unappropriate feelings. That most of our problems have to do with the fact that we're feeling things, and the feelings that we have are not appropriate. An example of that would be anger. Anger, whenever anger occurs, is generally not appropriate. And what I yeah. mean by that is, is that something better could be u- more useful. To be honest with you, it took me a long time. At one time, for actually not one time, but for many, many years, I had the belief that um, that some kinds, sometimes, some kinds of anger are useful, valuable, and wholesome. That you can get what you want if you're angry, or um if we um behave in an angry way, uh, we we do so because we know that we are right, that that what what's going on over there is absolutely wrong. And so that gives me justification for my righteous anger. An example of that, uh, I know it's a weird example would be the issue of uh, the Christians wanting to put judges uh, that will be against abortion. Because they have the righteous anger that I know that abortion is wrong. Or in fact, they don't know that at all. So our righteousness to, that we use to, to uh, justify our anger as often is just as polluted as the anger itself we're just trying to make a justification for the anger where in fact the anger is probably not appropriate okay so but anger is often difficult to control once the genie is out of the bottle so we have to practice yeah, They have that. to practice <laughs> and so the place that we began is with the body learning to control the breathing now I have seen this happen many times with myself uh, and I know that it happens to others, I can see it is that um, when any bad news happens or when something happens that we don't like the first thing that we do is we kind of get just a little depressed and that depression actually means that we're not breathing well but it's very, very common for the human being to not breathe well because of emotional reasons. Uh, it comes out of the instinct. The instinct is uh, if things are danger, we go into a freeze getting ready for flight or fright. Flight or fight, whatever. The fright came first. Fright, flight, or fight. Okay, what is that fright? That's the fear that actually uh, depresses the breathing. Uh, so an example of that is uh, the, the kid who was opening the email to find out if he got into college. And here he is holding his breath, waiting in anticipation putting himself, getting ready for a bad experience, I think. So this whole quality of learning to control the breathing means that we eventually get in the habit of breathing quite well. We begin to develop the habit because we're already in the habit of not breathing well. So we begin to develop the habit of breathing well and by doing so we begin to control or add something new to this bodily sankara, that the body actually feels better when it's got a lot of oxygen it actually is healthier not so tired and so by controlling the breathing we're actually doing a very beneficial thing for the body itself as well as learning to control the mind by learning to control the body in other words, it's kind of hard to understand that if I'm, if I'm controlling the breathing, that I'm controlling the breathing. No, if you're controlling the breathing, you have to do that with the mind. If we're taking a long, deep in-breath, and we know that it's a long, deep breath, that's actually a point of sake, to know that we're taking a long, deep in-breath. This is actually to be able to train the body is another way of training the mind, too. And so that's the first training of the mind, is to train the mind to be able to breathe well. Ah, And it feels better, especially if we begin to energize the body, taking a lot of air in. We begin to wake up and feel vibrantly alive because we're breathing well then the next sankara is the verbal sankara and the verbal sankara is like the kinds of dialogues or the concepts of talking that we do to ourselves but that uh talking to ourselves the um uh the verbal sankara and the sita sankara or the emotional sankara are deeply bound together just like the body and the feelings, or the body and the sensations of the body, are deeply bound together. The feelings of the mind and the thoughts of the mind are also deeply bound together. So as we're learning to control the, uh, the breathing, uh, we're also learning to control the mind, but we're also going to take active control of the mind. In fact, we can't even take a deep breath. Unless we remember to take a deep deep breath, and in that regard, we're controlling the mind. We begin to control the mind by controlling the breathing. Once we learn to control that, now we can begin to start changing the the thoughts that we have in the mind. This is when we really begin to control the thinking process. We decide that we're only going to allow wholesome thoughts and not allow unwholesome thoughts now the Buddha has a sutta number 19 that talks the name of the sutta is two kinds of thoughts and he breaks them into wholesome and unwholesome thoughts and that this fits in directly with the teachings about the hindrances in fact the hindrances themselves are not even mentioned in the Anapanasati Sutta nor are two kinds of thoughts But in these other suttas, uh, especially number 48, it makes a very important point about talking about what the hindrances are. And then it says that the student knows that no matter how obstructed the mind has gotten, we can clean those things out so that we can see how things really are. Now in this particular sutta, The word that is used in the Pali is not the word Sita. He's using the word Manu. And that's a very important point because the word Manu means that this is actually the thought process. This is not the deeper stuff. is not the Sita that has the emotion and the thought together. This is merely just thinking. So we're talking about the kind of hindrances or the kind of thoughts that we have are are to be managed so that we can throw these kind of thoughts out of the mind and eventually we come to the knowledge. This is when one becomes a real winner is when the student knows that no matter how obstructed the mind gets with hindrances. He can throw those hindrances out. And that is joy. That is a real joyful knowledge to know that that I can actually clean out the mind. This is the first knowledge that is super mundane. It's above the world. It is noble. It's a factor of the path. And it's not shared by ordinary people. What is that? The knowledge that I can throw the hints out of the mind. I can come to the state of seeing the way things really are. And when we're talking about seeing things the way they really are, to see the truth of the situation, at that point, basically, what we're talking about is is that we're operating completely out of the sensory awareness. Eyes, ears, nose. Uh, tongue, touch, uh, and deep proprioceptic, that in fact, uh, anxiety, frustration, uh, anger, fear are not part of that. What, is, what do you mean by that? Well, that means that these negative feelings don't come from the outside world. When I, when I look out and I see all of this green and, and I take in all of the, uh, the sights here at no time am I taking in any anger at no time am I taking in any anxiety which means that the anger and anxiety must have already been there they got stored somehow from something that happened in the past But we can throw that stuff out so that we can see the reality of the situation. The the reality of the situation is not dangerous right now. The reality of the situation. This is actually, um, what I'm doing is I'm introducing to you the concept of sunyata or emptiness. That in our investigation, we have to investigate not only what is there, but what is not there. okay like at a crime scene one of the most important qualities is is the murder weapon there or is it not there if it's not there that's an important piece of information so too also with our investigation we have to begin to investigate what is not there so when we're sitting and being satisfied Thinking about how nice and pleasant this moment is, what a nice third noble truth this is right now, we also note that we are free from the hindrances. We are free from the obstructions. We are in fact free from tension and anxiety. And most of the people that I know from the West, anxiety is a very common thing. We get tense and uptight. Basically, what we can say is the Buddha talked about restlessness, and we can use restlessness, uh, the word restlessness in English, as the Buddhist word for anxiety. Um, being not at rest, restless. less, uh, so there is no rest. We're constantly on the move. So that means that when we are at rest, we should be able to note that, to be able to see it, to be able to investigate, to see, is there any anxiety, or am I free from anxiety? Is there any sadness, or am I free from sadness? Is there any tiredness, or am I free from tiredness? And so we can go through this little inventory, this is what we mean by the investigation, and part of what we mean by the investigation also is to investigate the investigation. How is my investigation right now? Am I able to investigate? What, what am I seeing? Is my investigation sharper? Is it um, uh, uh, shallow? This is another way of beginning to investigate the state of mind that we're in. So the investigation is an important quality that we do. Right after we wake up, right after Sati, this is the time for the investigation. That in fact that investigation would be, aha, I see you Mara, because the seeing of the Mara is in fact due to the investigation. In this sense, we can talk about, I I can see you, restless mind. I can see you, monkey mind. And by saying, "Uh aha, I see restlessness, we can then take a deep breath and watch that restless mind fade away or drop down as I take in more satisfaction. Because the important quality of a restless mind is it's not in the state of satisfaction. Think about the monkey jumping from tree to tree, or the monkey mind, jumping and jumping and jumping. What's the problem? The problem is no matter where he jumps to, he's dissatisfied with it. This, too, is not good enough. And so we jump again, and this, too, is not good enough. And so the mind will begin to wander around like that because there's really no satisfaction in that restlessness but we can say, wait a minute. I can calm that down, and I can find satisfaction directly.
1: So, should I like go through the the five hindrances and like item by item investigate them, or just like kind of keep you open awareness
0: you can okay. do that. You can ask yourself, is there any uh, greed or What do I want right now? Many students can come up with, I want to be enlightened. Wanting to be enlightened is just dukkha. It is not enlightened. Being enlightened means I'm light enough. I don't want anything new. I've got it all. I've got everything I need. I do not need to add something to it. So yes, we can in fact investigate the hindrances in the sense of, am I satisfied? or do I want something? The other, one, the next hindrance is, is um, do I have to put up with something that I don't want to put up with? For instance, that would be like tiredness. I don't like the tiredness, so I want to feel good. Okay, well after I'm taking a few deep breaths, now I can begin to say, well where's that tiredness? And where is my dislike for that tiredness? When we're breathing deeply, we're unlikely to be in a state of uh, torpor or in a state of drowsiness or sleepiness or in a state of tiredness. Okay, that tiredness or sleepy state, if we, if we find ourselves in it, then the right thing to do is to breathe our way back out of it. So that after you're out of it, now you can investigate, am I free from that tiredness now? The next one would be about uh, restlessness that we've been talking about. Am I restless? Am I, am I uh, anxious? Now, here's something really interesting. Being anxious and wanting something are very closely related. Maybe the only difference is when you're anxious, you don't know why you're anxious. But when you want something, you really know what it is you want. That in fact, that's what anxiety really is or anxiousness is, is that we want something but we don't know what it is. All we know is that we feel bad. So um, the last one is doubt. To ask yourself, is there doubt here? What kind of doubt? The doubt about um, can I do this or not? The doubt about who can I get, it, get to do it for me? But I think that that doubt, that doubt is fairly easy to get dispelled. Once we understand the second noble truth at the basic level, ain't nobody going to help me out of this. No psychiatrist, no doctor, no priest, no guru, no Jesus. Nobody's going to get me out of this. I'm going to have to do it myself. And then we don't have that doubt. But the doubt does come back in the sense of, yeah, but can I do it? And the answer to that is is that um, we need the experience of knowing that we can do it because we're going to start at that level of doubt that maybe someone can talk you into it or convince you that meditation is a good idea. But unless you begin to get some value out of the meditation, people are not going to continue to do it. We have to get value very quickly. Once we start having value or we can see, yes, I can do this. Yes, I can throw the hindrances out of my mind. Yes, I can investigate them. Yes, I can. So this is that second or that first knowledge. Then the knowledge that no matter how obstructed the mind, yes, I can clean it out. That grows fairly slowly, because in the beginning we do it in seclusion, to where um, there's there's not a lot of uh, let us say external pressure. But as we begin to practice meditation, begin to practice Anapanasati and begin to get good at it, then there will come times when we are tested. An example of that is getting sick, the physical body getting sick. Bhikkhu Buddha das is really great on uh, sickness. He says, that's wonderful. Gives us an excellent opportunity to practice. To practice while we're sick. Because if we can practice while we're sick, we can certainly practice while we're well. Okay, so we actually begin over time to have things that are going to test us. To test our ability to uh, keep the mind clean. And when we are actually tested that way, then that is what gives us the confidence that, hey, it doesn't matter what comes by. Yeah, I can have some loss of income. Or I can get sick or we can have a corona 19 epidemic or, or any of those kind of things can happen. And I can still keep my mind in, an, in a state of equilibrium. I can still handle things. This is shraddha. That's confidence. And that confidence will build up. It will build to the point that you say, no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can clean it out. And so, in our investigation, we can investigate, well, how's my how's my confidence? Do I have any confidence that I can do that? And then we say, "Yeah, there's confidence there. I can do this. I know I can. And so these are the kinds of things that we want to investigate. We want to investigate, in fact, all of the stuff that we're actually doing. We want to investigate the hindrances. We can investigate the uh, uh, the shape of mind or the condition of the mind. Is the mind sharp? Is it focused? Is it drowsy? Is it scattered? Whatever condition the mind is in, we can note that and working with the breathing, even if the mind is scattered and, and a monkey mind just jumping all over the place, we can keep bringing it back and bringing it back and bringing it back and still it will jump around but we can still keep bringing it back we can still use our sati over and over again this is a training just like as if we were sick so sometimes the mind will get really really jumpy jumping all over the place this is a good opportunity to practice Keep bringing it back and bringing it back, dragging it back into wholesome ground, dragging it back into wholesome territory. So this is the practice that we need. And when we do that, then that confidence builds so that we know that we can do this, that we know that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can handle it. That I can begin to manage these feelings. So I can begin to feel the way that I want to feel. So this is the way that we're going to practice. Over and over and over again. It's a very simple thing. We just have to do it over and over and over again. Very repetitive. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. (laughs) Keep rinsing out the mind. Keep repeating it. And so... Uh, over time then more wholesome thoughts will come in automatically and the unwholesome thoughts that used to be there all, on an automatic basis all the time become less frequent because we keep throwing them back out of the mind and so this is the basic practice of Anapanasati and it's a very easy practice to do and it has really great success, if you begin to investigate that success, you'll be able to find it. In fact, there's one place where the Buddha says that he he will find pleasure wherever it may be found. That's an important quality. He was, he was asked a particular question about a particular thing. But his answer was quite general, that he can find pleasure wherever it may be found. And so this is the way that we practice. We do that investigation so that we can, in fact, find the pleasure. Now, when I'm using the word pleasure here, I'm actually referring to the word sukha, And that sukha is actually the opposite of dukkha. If we have sukha, if we have a state of pleasure, then this, there's no suffering there but if there is any suffering mixed in with it then that takes away from the pleasure it's not quite as pleasurable but so once, once we can bring it into pleasure so that's something also to investigate how's your pleasure how's your sutta another one to investigate would be how's your effort. Can you take the effort to take a deep breath? Can you take the effort to clean the mind's hindrances out and to keep the mind clean? This is also something to be investigated. So all of these things that are associated with Anapanasati, this is what we mean by investigation. Now, in this sense, Investigation is one's right noble view. The right noble view is investigation. It's not uh, a view that comes to conclusions. That ordinary right view will come to conclusions. Yes, I know how it is. But noble right view means, let's take another look. Let's look at it again. Let's keep investigating it. Let's keep noticing. And that we're going to notice both what is there and what is not there. We're going to notice the emptiness, too. Is it empty of anxiety? Is it empty of monkey mind? Is it empty of dukkha?
1: So, is it right view because it's seeing things as they are instead of how they seem to be?
0: Uh, Say that again.
1: Is it right view because it it is see, seeing things as they are instead of how they seem to be?
0: Um, yes, that's exactly correct. Okay. Uh, that right right noble view, in fact, doesn't come to a conclusion, um, and that it's the the basis or the foundation for the path. So it, of, is it kind of,
1: of like? Sorry. Uh-huh. Right, go ahead.
0: The um, right noble view, the Buddha says, comes first. In the Anapanasati Sutta, he actually talks about it in regard that he says, listen closely, and I will teach you about one thing right uh, unification of mind. With its supports and requisites. Okay. Right unification of mind with its supports and requisites. Now, right unification of mind uh, can be thought of as a sama area samati, the word samati or the eighth aspect of the path, which is wrongly translated as concentration That the word samadhi doesn't mean concentration, it means gathering together. All right, so in that regard, a unified mind would be the mind that has things gathered together, all of the things that are needed are put together. What would that be? That would be the wholesome things. So the things that would be involved with right unification of mind means that now the mind is, um, let us say, free from the things that would keep it uh, distracted or separated or broken apart or in sections. An example of that would be doubt. If there is any doubt in the mind, and that means it could be his, it could be that, it could be the other thing, it can be over here. In other words, it's scattered. So a unified mind is completely free from doubt. Another one would be that a mind that is completely uh, unified would be free from telling lies. It would be free from wanting things. In other words, the unified mind will be a mind that is not scattered or broken apart by hindrances. So we're not talking about an ultimate goal of an organized mind or a a unified mind. It's way off in the distance. But the unified mind is something that we can practice being in right now. That as we're practicing Anapanasati, we're actually practicing to get into the state of the mind being quite unified, as opposed to being a crowd. I see. Human being is a crowd. What do we mean? Right now, I'm angry. Next minute, I'm afraid. The next minute, I'm uh, 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 hungry. And so we just go all over the place. But a unified mind is a mind that's whole and is, does not get easily distracted, doesn't get distracted hardly at all. And this is the goal of the Eightfold Noble Path. And so the Buddha then says, right view comes first.
1: So I, I have a question about right view. So it's it seems like it's like the right way of looking, right? It's not like right, because you said there's no conclusion. So it's not really right understanding. It's that we're seeing correctly. Is, is that correct?
0: A better way of saying it, it is it's not a viewpoint. Okay. Okay. All uh, right. The example that I will use, it's an ordinary example, but the example is, is that um, uh, the, the video that you have now is just one camera with one point of view, and all you can see is what you can see that's on that camera to where a movie is, will have many camera shots, many camera angles. So that means that a good movie, a high-quality movie, will have many, many different views. This is how we're beginning to understand what is right noble view, is one that doesn't get stuck on a viewpoint. And almost always, (laughs) that viewpoint is going to be selfish. My point of view. But when we take that selfishness out, because that's, that's ordinary right view. Ordinary right view is my viewpoint. But a uh, noble right view is to recognize there are many, many different viewpoints. Some of them have attributes that are worthwhile. Others have attributes that are not worthwhile. But that things need to be seen from a lot of different angles. This is one of the reasons why people uh, who know will say that right noble view is in fact compassion. A real compassion, because we really do see what other people are going through. And we're not seeing it from our point of view, we're seeing it from their point of view. Another example would be in a meeting that had 10 people in it. All 10 people come out of that meeting. Some of them will have assignments and others will have gripes and whatever. But there is not one point of view about that meeting that comes out. 10 people come out and every one of them has their own point of view. And without a camera and a video recorder, we may not, in fact, ever know what happened into that meeting because the people themselves can't agree. That, in fact, uh, jurisprudence has known for a long, long, many, many, many centuries that um, eyewitnesses are not good evidence in court. They just happen to be the only evidence that we've had for quite a while. Okay, and so uh, the courts would normally take the point of view of the police. Now that we have cameras out on the street, we can begin to see what really happened, not just what the police say because of their own point of view. So this is what we mean by right noble view is not a fixed viewpoint, but it's rather the amalgamation of dozens of viewpoints depends upon the number of, of people and, and whatnot like that but but there's a lot of different viewpoints and that the, the most noble one is one that's not fixed it's continuously doing the investigation And so white noble view is really needed for our anapanasati. And so we're going to investigate, 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 and then investigate how we're investigating. (laughs) We're going to investigate the joy. We're going to investigate the mindfulness. How woke up am I? Everything winds up being an investigation in this regard. And so as we begin to investigate, we begin to see more and more. We can begin to see is this hindrance or not and that this is actually the way that you can think of as insight comes or the, the, the word Vipassana is because we're doing an investigation. We're not getting the mind see a lot of people think that that, um, uh, that Vipassana has to mean that you have to get your mind into a new state and from that new state You can see things. That's not what we're practicing here. We're not trying to get the mind into any particular deep state. We're trying to wake it up so that it can move around and it can see things correctly. That uh, I think that Westerners have kind of a misunderstanding about uh, meditation Because they they see it in the sense of a a hall full of people that are sitting still. And when we see a lot of people just sitting still, that gives us the idea of no activity. It's almost like the same thing as as if they were all asleep.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of Westerners think it's just um, not having thoughts. Like the goal is to just no thoughts.
0: Exactly so. And there, uh, there is a state of, of, of no mind, or in Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's language, he calls it void mind. But this voidness or this emptiness of mind means that it's not 100% or totally empty. It means that we, when it's not got something there, we know that that something is not there. That emptiness is known. The void mind then would be a a mind that would be void or free from Dukkha.
1: Is that one of the jhanas? Pardon? Is that one of the jhanas?
0: Well, yeah, basically, yeah, but That's not the place where the real growth is done. And not only that, but this going deep that people do is generally not jhana. Even if they get themselves to a state of thoughtlessness, it doesn't have all of the factors of, say, second jhana. But it does have some of the factors of jhana. The only way to practice jhana correctly is by gathering all of the factors of first jhana and once you have all of the factors together of first jhana, then you can manipulate them into the higher jhanas. An example of that is, is that um, the, the correct way of learning how to control the mind so that it goes to a state of thoughtlessness is by learning to corral the thoughts. That you're just not going to go from mind scattered all over the place into thoughtlessness that basically you have to gather things together. And one of those would be like the monkey mind. You're not going to go from monkey mind to no mind. You're going to have to take that monkey mind and settle it down to get it into a small area. An example of that would be only wholesome thoughts as opposed to unwholesome thoughts. And so the skill that we're developing Is the skill of not letting the mind wander so far away. And to uh, put boundaries around it. One of the boundaries that we're putting around it is the here now. As opposed to past and future. Another boundary we're putting around it is tying it to the breath. Another one is, is that we're really watching what's going on. We're paying attention. This is an investigation. Okay. So... By doing that, we're systematically bringing the mind into a smaller and tighter space. Eventually, we can get it down to just a few words. Eventually, after that, we can get it down to just maybe two words. And that would be like Budo. Boo on the in-breath and do on the out-breath. But that, we can call it a mantra, but it has the following qualities. It is not a mantra that has other words mixed with it. But it's, it's this mantra, mantra is down to the point that this is the only thought that we have. It's boo on the in-breath and do on the out-breath, because that allows allow us, when we get down to two words, it's easier to throw out just two words than it is to throw out the whole monkey mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so this is how we would bring the mind down to a state of being in a thoughtless state, is getting it down to just two thoughts. Boo, Do. Boo, Do. bu Do, right. This <laughs> okay. is, uh, this is uh, out of the forest Thai, Thai forest tradition of budo. Do. Boo on the in-breath, Do on the out-breath. But this is something that's practiced after someone already has first jhana. At first, jhana is being able to control the mind to keep it out of hindrances, to keep it into wholesome states. And so people who are practicing without removing the hindrances don't have a chance. Whatever state they go into is not jhana, because they're not gathering all of the factors together of first jhana. So this is what we are actually doing, is gathering the factors together of first jhana and that means being able to control the breath, to control the mind, and eventually to control the feelings. Because the feelings are part of the mind. That we can actually begin to see um, anxiety directly. Normally, we don't see anxiety directly. Normally, anxiety, which is based in fear, is subconscious. It's not brought up to the full level of consciousness. It's not something that that we're normally awake to, which means that it has subtle influences. It's almost like um, uh, anxiety could be seen as something like uh, uh, the tide, lifting and the boat comes up and yet the boat is affected by that uh, by that tide but nobody was aware of the tide that's also true of like anxiety that when anxiety comes up we may not be aware of the anxiety but we will try to to depress it or we'll try to solve the problem rather than working directly with the anxiety. So our job here is to see that this anxiety is actually nothing but the restlessness of a hindrance. And it has two components. One is the monkey mind, the restless mind, and the other one is the tension or the anxiety that we feel in the body. And we need to investigate both of them, taking deep breaths. When we talk about investigation, we're not talking about a static investigation, we're talking much more about an active investigation in the sense of breathing into that anxiety to see what happens, to investigate it like that. And so this is the way that we practice. We practice in the sense of uh, investigation and uh, noticing what's going on so that we can make choices about what we're going to allow the mind to do. We're not okay. going to allow it to be in hindrance. We're not going to allow it to be in anxiety. We're going to keep it, by through our investigation, to keep it in wholesome states. If we can keep the thoughts in wholesome states, we can also keep the feelings in wholesome states. Also, by being breathing we can uh, remove a lot of stuff that's emotional because it's also connected to the body. An example of that is by breathing very well, we're unlikely to get tired. Not so much tired. If in fact we're breathing deeply, then the anxiety will be affected by that deep breathing. You can even go so far, some teachers talk about it, breathing the anxiety out we're breathing in and then as we breathe out the anxiety goes too so this is part of the investigation of the hindrances And so yes I would say that anxiety or in fact any kind of feeling that is an uncomfortable feeling fear, anger, sadness, grief anxiety, depression any of those kind of things Keep us out of a state of, uh, of satisfaction and therefore could be considered hindrances. So the hindrances, whether they are thought or whether they're emotion, in fact, there are there's a good reason to think in English language. We're not talking about poly now, but just in English. The word thought does not have to have only verbal thought. There are other kinds of thinking that we do that is not verbal. One of them would be an activity. A musician, when he's playing music, he doesn't think about which note that he's going to think uh, play and also uh, put a word to it. When somebody's actually singing a song, if they start thinking about something else, they won't be able to sing the song. But if we sing the song and are only doing that, then the other kind of thinking is not going to be happening. Okay, so by just doing this investigation or doing this um, thing, here's another example of that: is a jeweler, jeweler, when he's mounting a diamond. He doesn't have to think about this is the diamond and this is the ring and I'm putting it here. No, he just does all of that stuff. He's watching very, very closely to what he's doing, but he's not having a verbal thinking process of it. He's merely paying attention to what he's doing, and that, too, is a kind of thinking. And so the kind of thinking, then, that we want to do may not be so much verbal but it's still wholesome in the sense of uh, the thoughts that we have about be here now it may not be quite so verbal, but it really is enjoyable. Oh, what a nice day it is. Oh, I enjoy that wind. And I'm talking about it. But I, to convey it to you, but just sitting here, I don't have to tell myself how nice the breeze is. I can just enjoy the breeze. And that's, too, also a kind of thought. And so these are the kinds of things also that can be investigated as to what kind of thoughts am I having? Not in the sense of uh, wholesome and unwholesome, but what kind of thoughts at what level are they? Are they completely verbal or are they nonverbal thoughts? And so all of these things can be uh, used as fodder for the investigation, and all of them are happening right here, right now. Exciting. okay so this is the way that we're going to practice adding that investigation adding that right view right view okay. comes first with right view comes right sati to wake up so that we can do this right view taking the right effort to do the investigation taking the effort to take a deep breath take the effort to Aha, i see you mara and throw that stuff out. And then the next item on the list, which is a really important one, uh, is right attitude. Now, some translations translate that as either right thought or right intention, but both of these are not correct. In fact, we wanna make sure that we're not using it as right intention because right intention is not possible. Intention means that we just want something. This is much more the quality of right attitude, the attitude that I can do this, the attitude of success, the attitude of I'm I can I can see this stuff, the attitude of I'm in I'm an investigator, that's what we're doing. We can we can see it, and so these are the path factors now. These fact factors of. Right noble view, right noble sati, right noble effort, and right noble attitude are the things that we bring together this right noble unified mind. These four factors, right view, right effort, right sati, and right uh, attitude, those four things together help bring about the samadhi of the unified mind. Okay. And so the other three factors on the Eightfold Noble Path, right action, right speech, and right livelihood, are in this regard outcomes of having a unified mind. Now, in the beginning, we teach our children, we give our children a bunch of rules. You can't hit your little sister. You can't take that uh, uh, pencil from Johnny. You can't steal. Okay? This is how we teach our children, but in the noble respect, we no longer live according to a set of rules and and rites and, and rituals and whatnot. Now we go by wisdom. This is, in fact, one's right, noble view, is wisdom, and the wisdom is is to the investigation to know what is suffering and what is not suffering. And by being free from suffering, we now have a unified mind, a mind that's noble, a mind that's taintless. So that means that now our Siva, or our morality, of right action, right speech and right livelihood is actually an outcome of the Eightfold noble Path, not a contributing factor to it. And yet most Buddhism talk about Sila or morality is the number one issue. it's to be done first. Actually that's the way of ordinary Buddhism. And that people have to go through ordinary Buddhism to get to the level of noble Buddhism. But once they're at the state of nobility, now their morality is not guided by a set of rules anymore. It's guided by wisdom alone. So when the mind is pure, our speech is going to be pure. If you don't want anything, you're not going to steal anything. If you see a girl and you like her, but you don't want her, then you're unlikely to uh, make her uh, boyfriend jealous. But if you see her and you want her, now you're causing trouble. So this is the way that we're looking at it, that our morality actually is the outcome of having a noble mind. A mind that's noble. And that we gain that noble mind through... Right view, right effort, right sati, and right attitude. And the attitude is the attitude of a lion, the attitude of a winner, the attitude of I can do this. The attitude that no matter how obstructed the mind gets with hindrances, I can clean those hindrances right back out of the mind and be free from them and satisfied. And so this is actually the Eightfold Noble Path. That's what we're practicing. We only practice Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the Eightfold Noble Path.
1: But we're, we're missing one. We're missing, that's only seven. Pardon? That's only seven.
0: Right livelihood is the eighth one.
1: So view, effort, sati, attitude, action, speech, and livelihood.
0: Right speech, excuse me, let's start again with uh, right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude, bring together right unification of mind. Yes. That's five, leaving three, right speech, right action, and right livelihood.
1: Oh, unification of mind is one?
0: Right unification of mind is the actual goal of the Eightfold Noble Path.
1: Right, so there's view, right effort, sati, attitude, and then there's also right unification of mind. That's that's one of the.
0: That's number five. Got it. Okay, I was missing. Got it. Okay, in the list that I'm giving, now there are other lists that okay. that break it out into. Um, there's there's two ways of doing it one is by like talk the the April noble path can be broken into three groups sila samati panya sila samati panya means that first the student sits down in meditation they gets really quiet and he's not harming anyone then uh samati means that we get the mind free from hindrances and then panya means that we come to understand uh, self, and we understand uh, our relationship to the world, and we begin to get rid of our fetters. So those fetters are uh, personality view, rights, rules, and rituals, and doubt. Once we've gotten three of those three, now we come to the state of Panya, or wisdom, That means that we've changed from an ordinary eightfold path into the noble eightfold noble path, and the nobility is because of this wisdom. Now we're going to talk about the eightfold noble path in a new way. Got it. And and the new way is uh, Panya Sila Samati. But a better way would be Panya Samati Sila. Panya Samati Sila is actually the way that we're practicing. With Sila being the outcome, because uh, one who has a noble mind, free from hindrances, is actually quite naturally going to be keeping the precepts. But he's not keeping precepts, he's just keeping a noble mind.
1: Right.
0: Okay. I do not have to avoid the cesspool. If because it doesn't I'm,
1: look good. Because it's a cesspool. Because
0: I don't care <laughs> the cesspool. Exactly. Yeah. well the beginner, we have to teach them. You have to avoid the cesspool of uh, of seba mm-hmm. But once the mind is noble, there is no cesspool around to step in. That's the difference. Got it. Makes perfect sense. Okay. All right, so. The main job is right noble view. Investigate, investigate, investigate.
1: That's right. Okay. Well, I will try I will be the best investigator that I can be. All right. It's exciting too. I, I like that it's it's fun investigating. Looking into the yes, nature of the perceptions. Looking
0: perceptions. The nature of the mind is really a, a, a fun investigation.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's finish this off now, and we'll talk later. Okay. I want to congratulate you. You're doing a good job. You're, thank you. I you're, appreciate. Uh, it. Making progress.
1: Well, you're being a wonderful teacher, so thank you.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I have, I have, uh, I have like a just a, a comment that I, I think you might uh, be interested in, um, unless you have to run. It'll just be quick though. But uh, have you have you heard of someone called? Wim Hof
0: Wim Hof Yes No
1: So he's a he's like a super athlete and he actually he's huge on the breathing thing and every what the your emphasis on the breathing actually brings to mind a lot of his teachings So this I mean this guy clout, climbed Mount Everest with just shorts and shoes
0: Oh I have heard of this guy Yeah I've forgotten his name but yes I I know him many things like that in fact the Navy seals have now started a what they call a box breathing okay that has helped. yes the human the human race I think finally in the 21st century is waking up to the fact that we need to pay attention to our breathing yeah that I think that all of this exercise stuff that has gotten so popular um, is not such a benefit other than the fact that people are breathing. They breathe when they're exercising. And that's the the best benefit of, the, of exercising is taking deep breaths. Mm-hmm. We don't have to actually go out and, and lift a cord of wood or cut a cord of wood to breathe deeply. We could do that. We don't have to go running. We could just sit and breathe deep. Yeah. Yeah, it's I'm interesting. The world waking up to that.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, really quick clarification question. So, sorry, am I not coming in clearly? Can you hear me? Okay.
0: Yeah. I'm.
1: Okay. So. I can,
0: um, Yeah, your your connection is good. My hearing is a problem. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> um. So, last time we spoke, you were using suka more with, with the definition of satisfaction, but this time I noticed that you. You were saying pleasure as well for sukha. So is it kind of like a mix of the two?
0: Well, it's a matter of how we define it. Uh, But satisfaction and pleasure are in fact the same thing. We're just looking at it from different language positions. Okay. Okay. Satisfaction is pleasurable. Being yeah. in a state of pleasure is satisfying. That's true. <laughs> All right. Okay. So that's All right. That's a, okay.
1: Okay, that's it. Thank you for your time.
0: All righty, we'll see you later. Yeah, I'll see you soon. Good talk, Julian.
1: best time. As
0: always. Okay, bye-bye.